0: Let us pray, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our strength and our redeemer, amen. Please be seated. Does anyone remember WWJD? Remember that WWJD? It was a phrase and movement that became very popular about 20 years ago. A logo printed on hats and t-shirts and most commonly, rubber bracelets. There was apparently even a movie and a board game. WWJD was everywhere, seemingly. If it wasn't something that you wore, then maybe your child or grandchild did. In fact, I wonder if anyone might be wearing a piece of WWJD swag right now, uh, either as they uh, sit at home watching. I'm positive that someone has a bracelet lying around in a kitchen or dresser drawer. At least at my home, I know that there's one. And WWJD stands, of course, for what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Believe it or not, the phrase goes back at least 600 years to the 1400s when Thomas a Kempis, the Dutch Catholic monk, used it in his widely read devotional book, The Imitation of Christ. What Would Jesus Do also became quite popular in the late 19th century when it showed up in the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher. It was also the title of an 1891 hymn written by A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church and most notably in the 1896 book In His Steps by Charles Sheldon, which was something of an international sensation. It sold like 30 million copies and went on to be one of the top 50 best selling novels of all time. Now in our day, the what would Jesus do craze was sparked by a youth minister in Holland, Michigan named Janie Tinkelberg. Janie Tinkelberg, who in the 1990s made these, these bracelets for the students in her youth ministry, in her church, bearing those four letters, WWJD. And very quickly, the bracelets caught on and soon millions of people across the world Joined in. And I have to say that for the most part, the, the WWJD movement, the What Would Jesus Do movement, was a very good thing. You know, anytime people are talking and thinking about Jesus, it's a good thing. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. He was responding to concerns they had about the orthodoxy of some preachers. And Paul writes, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. In thinking about WWJD, I'm also reminded how in contrast to so many other historical figures, perhaps every other historical figure, almost nothing of what Jesus did was morally questionable or objectionable, even 2,000 years later. So often when we learn about the lives of people who lived long ago, we find that they said and did things which need a good deal of explanation or justification or just forgiveness, like they made mistakes. But that's not the case for Jesus. Everyone else seems to be a bit of a mixed bag. They do some good things, they do some bad things, but not Jesus. Jesus never abused anyone, never killed anyone, never gossiped or exploited anyone for his own purposes. For Jesus, the ends never justified the means. Rather, when we ask the question, we consider the question, what would Jesus do? We must answer that he would love his enemies and pray for those who persecuted him, that he would give to all who asked, that he would turn the other cheek, that he would forgive, that he would tell the truth. So again, I think it's a very good thing to ask ourselves as we go about our daily lives, what would Jesus do? And to strive to live accordingly. But that being said, I think that WWJD has its limits. Because as we read the biblical accounts, as we read the stories of Jesus' life, there are so many things that he did that we could never hope to do. Jesus calmed storms. He made blind men see and lame men walk. He fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and fish. He turned water into wine. Jesus cast out demons and raised people from the dead. And of course, he himself came back from the dead on that first Easter morning. When we read the Gospel accounts, we're struck not so much by how Jesus is like us, but rather just how unlike us he is. He has a power unlike ours, an authority, a purity, a holiness, which comes from somewhere else. The phrase, what would Jesus do, asks us to view Jesus as a moral example, as a model for our own lives. But when we actually read about Jesus, we find that the example he sets is very often, perhaps most often, uh, unattainable for us sinners. What we also find is that while Jesus often called people to follow him, he much more often called them to believe in him to put their trust in him. The content of Jesus' message was not primarily do as I do, but rather trust in me, believe in me. Jesus' message was less about action and more about faith. Jesus, of course, did come to give us an example of godly living, but his message was not primarily about an example, rather he came to save us, to rescue and deliver us, to forgive us. And so to me, the questions that are perhaps more compelling than what would Jesus do are, what did Jesus do? What has Jesus done? And what is Jesus doing? And that's what we see in today's gospel reading. Which begins, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Now, we could perhaps take this passage as an example of how to pray. And I think we can read the Gospel accounts. Again, we can use Jesus as an example of how we should pray to God. But today, I want to talk rather about what a miracle it is, what a joy and comfort it is that Jesus prays for his disciples disciples. Jesus prays for his followers. He prays for you. He prays for me. He prayed then and he is still praying now, still praying for us today. Again, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 34 writes this, Christ Jesus, who died, yes, who was raised, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Jesus is sitting right next to God interceding for you and me. The author of Hebrews uh, writes, Jesus is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is alive again making intercession for us and finally, John in his first letter, chapter two, verse one writes, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is advocating for us. Jesus is praying for us. And what is he praying? What is he asking God for? Well, in today's gospel reading, it's, it's two things, protection, And sanctification here's what he says holy father protect them protect my disciples my followers in your name protect them from the evil one and he goes on sanctify them in the truth make them holy Jesus prays wash them clean Jesus prays that God would protect us and make us holy And couldn't you use a little bit of protection? Wouldn't you like to be a bit more holy, a bit more peaceful and patient and loving and joyful? That's what Jesus is praying for you. That's what he's whispering in his father's ear and God will answer his son's prayers. Now, I do have to say that our idea of protection and Jesus's may be a bit different. After all, every single one of Jesus's original disciples were either martyred or exiled for their faith. I'm reminded of a cartoon I once saw which showed some Christians huddling in the middle of a Colosseum with with fans in the stands and lions were being led into the Colosseum and the tagline said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, Jesus is not naive to this reality because in today's gospel reading, he also says, I have given my disciples your word and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you, God sa- Jesus says this to God, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. So the protection that Jesus asks for is not primarily physical, but spiritual. Jesus prays that his disciples would be protected from the devil, protected from losing faith in him, protected not from physical death, but from spiritual death. And all indications are that this prayer was answered Jesus' disciples may have suffered for their faith, but they did not lose it. And whatever pains they may have endured in this earthly life, they have now entered into eternal life. They're now with Jesus. They see him face to face. Jesus' prayer for his disciples was answered, and his prayer for us will be answered as well. So that's the prayer for protection now, what about Jesus' prayer that we might be sanctified? That's kind of a, a, a special Christian word, right? Sanctified. It means to be made holy. What does that prayer mean? What does it mean to be made holy, Christianly speaking? Well, I want to read you a quote from one of my favorite theologians. He recently passed away, an uh, American Lutheran theologian named Gerhard, Forda, And he's writing this towards the end of his life. He's wrestling with the question of his own holiness, the progress he may or may not have made in the Christian life. And here's what Gerhard Forde writes: "Am I making progress? If I'm really honest, it seems to me that the question is odd, even a little ridiculous. As I get older and death draws nearer, it doesn't seem to get any easier. I get a little more impatient a little more anxious about having perhaps missed what this life has to offer, a little slower, harder to move, a little more sedentary and set in my ways. It seems more and more unjust to me that now that I've spent a good part of my life, quote, getting to the top, and I seem just about to have made it, I'm already slowing down, already on the way out. A skiing injury from when I was 16 years old acts up if I overexert myself. I'm too heavy, the doctors tell me, but it is so hard to lose weight. Am I making progress? Well, maybe it seems as though I sin less, but that may only be because I'm getting tired. It's just too hard to keep indulging the lusts of youth. Is that sanctification? Is that holiness? I wouldn't think so. One should not, I expect, mistake encroaching senility for sanctification. But can it be perhaps that it is precisely the unconditional gift of grace that helps me to see and admit all that. I hope so. The grace of God should lead us to see the truth about ourselves and to gain a certain lucidity, a certain sense of humor, a certain down to earthness. When we come to realize that if we are going to be saved, it shall have to be absolutely by grace alone then we shall be sanctified, we shall be holy. God will have his way with us at last. What Gerhard Forda says in this passage is that progress in the Christian life is not a matter of our holiness, our righteousness, our goodness, but rather trusting in Jesus's holiness. Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' goodness to us. Holiness is about believing, trusting in Jesus, and about the peace, the joy, the love that flow from our relationship with him, our faith in him. After the uh, WWJD craze passed, a sequel bracelet was made. It was intended to be the answer to the question, what would Jesus do? And this new acronym wasn't nearly as catchy. It didn't sell millions of of copies, but it was very true, very biblical, and very helpful. The four new letters were F-R-O-G, FROG, FROG, which stood for fully rely on God. What would Jesus do? He would fully rely on God, rely on God for protection, rely on God for holiness. And we are called, invited to do the same. Jesus is praying for us, praying for you and for me right now. Jesus is interceding with his Father, advocating for us. Jesus is praying for protection and for the holiness that comes through faith in him. And his prayers for us will be answered, even as they were answered for his disciples all those years ago. That's what Jesus is doing. Amen.